This is Robbie Martin, your host of Media Roots Radio for today. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Someone asked me recently why we're called Media Roots Radio. It's not that complicated. It's not just a name for the hell of it either. When we originally started this podcast, we actually did it in part because we were being broadcast on shortwave radio. We're not anymore. That was really only for the first year of us doing this. And ever since, it's just been a podcast. So the name is actually somewhat legitimate in the sense that we didn't just name ourselves Media Roots Radio. um, And we've always been doing a podcast. So thanks for tuning into our podcast. Abby is, of course, still on a little bit of a maternity leave. And today we have a very special guest on Media Roots Radio. Talk about a lot of different stuff to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, xenophobia that has erupted afterwards against China and against Asian Americans. And also the current state of the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests, uh, sort of zooming out from all that and looking at it, you know, what the potential of it could be moving forward to attach different leftist causes to that struggle. And we also go into... The mysterious Boogaloo Boys group, which had some members launch a deadly attack against two law enforcement officers that the right-wing media was quick to blame on BLM or Antifa, of course. When it turned out, actually, to be a crime committed by an active-duty Air Force sergeant who was influenced by this 4chan right-wing troll group. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you would consider becoming a donor to us on patreon.com at patreon.com slash media roots radio. We are now releasing one bonus episode per month exclusive to our patrons. Our episode at the end of this month that will be a bonus episode for our patrons will be an overview of what is QAnon and should we be actually concerned about it. So I'm going to be breaking that whole thing down in a long-form podcast. Uh, it would be released at the very end of June. And our next podcast, after this one with Danny, will be an, a solo podcast with me going through the chronology of all the extreme police brutality and sort of the, the escalation in police brutality since the protest started. Danny Haifong is a contributing editor of Black Agenda Report. And he is the co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News. Danny and Margaret Kimberly from Black Agenda Report are launching a podcast fairly soon. And I hope I haven't let the cat out of the bag by saying that here, because I don't know if it's been officially announced yet, but I'm really excited for that as well. So I'll stop my rambling for now, and we'll just go right into our interview with Danny Haifong. The interview begins with us bashing CNN and other cable news networks for lowering the bar on their own video production quality during the pandemic. I mean, the the funny part right now is that I feel like the playing field is leveled to such an extent where like there's like mainstream celebrities with like terrible audio quality. Like, yeah, (laughs) it almost doesn't matter. The COVID-19 pandemic has definitely exposed how the corporate media does not give a fuck about the quality of their programming. Like, can't they at least, like, send all these, or, like, 
especially like their own employees like on microphone or something like right right really funny you would think that they would get their like you know super exploited wage slaves to drive out to their fucking mansions and set up their mic when they're not in the room or something and then you know set up their uh video and audio systems and just be like here's the microphone this is how you use it bye I'm surprised none of these media companies are just like sending out like a camera on a tripod to like hook into right. the computer or something. It's weird. It's, but I mean, it just speaks to a level of depravity that <laughs> I don't know. Yep. Yep. Do you mind if we just start getting right into it? Yeah. Now? Let's get right into it. Yeah. Okay. I, I always seem to find myself agreeing with your political takes on Twitter, which sadly is becoming increasingly rare for me these days to find people that I agree with on most things. I appreciate what you're doing out there. I also really appreciated you going on Jimmy Dore, where Jimmy Dore let you come on sort of after Matt Stoller, and you basically destroyed all of his talking points, um, and I thought you did it beautifully. And you didn't really make it personal either. I mean, it's not about Stoller. It's just about this push, this you know suspicious push. Maybe some of it's organic since it's happened after COVID-19 in a, in a more extreme way, but... There does seem to be a very manufactured and deliberate push happening right now to change the focus away from our previous enemy that was meddling, you know, doing all these nefarious things in our country, meddling in our affairs, trying to um, create divides domestically, politically. It's shifted from Russia to China, and it seemingly really quickly, but it's not exactly like how I'm describing it because the whole neoliberal media circuit is not necessarily going hard on China like they were on Russia. So it's not, you know, the comparison's not 100% accurate, but how do you feel about how that sort of exploded um, after the pandemic? And also, did you see it sort of coming before that? Because this is not, you know, it didn't come out of a vacuum. It seems like there's been many stepping stones to get to this sort of anti-China hysterical point um, that we're in now. Yeah, no, for sure. Everything you're saying is is very true. And another aspect to this is uh, all of it really began in 1949 when, uh, when China um, underwent a revolution that overthrew a very U.S.-friendly nationalist government that was slaughtering peasants and um, seeking to basically keep China uh, a very dependent country uh, to the imperialist orbit. And now what we're seeing, I think, 70 years later is a culmination of that revolution being able to make necessary adjustments, hard and difficult decisions, but going through a process of transformation where this once ravaged, underdeveloped country that had basically been the playground of Western imperialism has been able to become a world power and a world power that does not have to depend on the United States. It doesn't have to depend on the West in order to achieve its overall objectives. And I think that is really the basis of the overall aggression that the United States is so hell bent on waging against China. But when the pandemic happened, and I think uh, it was hard for me because I had just come back from China as the pandemic, uh, or before it was even called the pandemic, as coronavirus was spreading uh, across the country, I had come back and then- When was that? 
January. Um, yep. So I came back from China in mid January, January 10th, 11th. And, uh, that this was a time where, you know, the COVID-19, uh, virus was still new. There was still not a lot known. Uh, uh, there was still a lot of research being done. It wasn't really even a, a story where I was in China, right? I was nowhere near Hubei province. Um, and so, you know, when I got back, it really exploded there, at least in, in now that we're seeing. Uh, it, it was exploding in the terms of how China experienced it here in the United States. It's been a whole lot worse. But I think what was very evident from the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic was that the United States wanted to use the virus as a chip in the geopolitical chessboard as a, uh, a piece in that larger strategy of containment of China. And uh, it backfired mightily. And I think that's why we're seeing such a hostile position now um, over by both political parties in the United States that COVID-19 has not only negated American exceptionalism domestically for the United States, but it's also forced the United States and its entire imperial apparatus to demonize China to um, an extreme degree in order to faint, uh, avoid accountability for all the crimes that have been exposed by this virus, but also for the fact that China handled the virus in a way that the United States never would be able to, not only because China's very uh, centrally planned economy has the capacity to make adjustments when adjustments need to be made to the benefit of people, but also because this neoliberal capitalist disaster here in the United States doesn't even allow for any such organization or adjustments or responses that uh, benefit ordinary people here. So it was it, it was not so predictable that it would take the form that it's taken to the point now where we hear ridiculous stories coming out of the intelligence apparatus and coming out of uh, both the neoliberal and neoconservative establishment about uh, how Trump begged China to uh, uh, help him win, win the election uh, coming up in order and that he would turn away from China's so-called, uh, you know, oppression of Uyghurs. Oh, the whatnot, Bolton. As, You're talking about the Bolton revelations from his Right, book. the Bolton yeah. revelations, all this like Trump begging China to basically help him and then he would help China. All of this uh, ridiculousness coming out of the entire U.S. political establishment is is just another part of this larger policy that the United States has been waging for 70 years of containing China, of trying to overthrow its revolution, of trying to destroy its society. But in this era of great power competition, as the Trump administration, as uh, the entire military establishment sees it, this era is a different one in a sense where there is an acknowledgement that China is a rising power and that it is not a power that can be uh, leveraged and allied with and manipulated to follow the diktats of the U.S. and West. No, it's a power that actually offers something else to the world, which threatens financial interests. It threatens corporate interests of the United States and the West. And it also threatens military superiority, which is so important for the United States at this point with an economy 
a capitalist economy, that has nothing to offer anybody. It can't offer the underdeveloped neo-colonial world, the former colonial world, anything, because um, it has for decades been strangling Africa, Latin America, much of Asia with wars, debts uh, that can't be paid, privatization schemes. Um, and it has nothing to offer in the diplomatic sense in that uh, the United States really just supports uh, regimes that will allow its companies, its banks to exploit resources and exploit labor, while China offers something a little different. It offers uh, something that's a lot different, actually. It, it offers win-win uh, cooperation, infrastructure for resources. It offers a future out of the poverty and the misery um, that the West and the U.S. has for centuries been providing. So it, I think, was inevitable that we'd get to this point because China's development model and the U.S.'s development model are in contradistinction to each other. China has taken the line for so long, for three, four decades, that uh, cooperation and coexistence between the United States and China is beneficial and that war is not on the table and that it should never be on the table. However, uh, one of my criticisms of China is that that, would, oh, that was always going to be the case. And I'm sure that most in the Politburo, most in the central government, uh, most in Chinese society knew that. But it was one of those concessions politically that you make in order to defend your society from aggression as best as you can. And now we're seeing this climax period where you don't really have anyone in the U.S. political establishment who's willing to uh, do business with China in a way that doesn't outwardly threaten its sovereignty and threaten its um, existence as a state that it sees as socialist in character. So, yeah, we're at a very interesting point, I think, in U.S.-China relations. It's a very dangerous one, but I think it's one that shows an inevitable shift in world relations. It shows that China is really the future of the global economic and social order uh, of the 21st century. And the United States is really history in a lot of ways, um, that it's really hanging on by its military aggression, by its uh, hegemony politically, socially, through its uh, economic uh, you know, uh, play its economic um, banditry, that th this is all it has left is aggression and militarism. And China, I think, is in a good position in many ways. But right, the United States has used nuclear weapons before. It has lots of military bases, lots of military weaponry uh, surrounding China. It just... Um, you know, engage in some heinous military military deals with Taiwan. We know what's happening in Hong Kong, which was a subject of the segment I did with Jimmy Dore. All of this is about containing China's rise. It probably will not work. Actually, it won't work. I'm pretty certain of that. But the dangers of broader wars and also the negative implications for ordinary people, oppressed people, and working people here in the United States and the rest of the world are really far-reaching. Yeah, I just really want to quickly ask you about um, this really recent incident that happened. I think it 
happened yesterday or maybe the day before we're recording this of um, a skirmish of Indian and Chinese troops on the border in the sort of the Himalayan territories. And I'm wondering how in the hell did that happen? I mean, it, it, is someone egging on Modi's government right now to exacerbate tensions with China? It, or is there some whole geopolit or like political situation between the two countries specifically that I just am completely ignorant on? Like I, it seems really odd to me that that just happened. I, and I just want to get your take on that. Yeah, well, China and India have had their disagreements about the the border that they share and where that border begins and ends. Um, but I do think that this particular situation is definite, definitely has its handprints uh, of the United States, the handprints of the United States somewhere in it. It's, it's not easy yeah. to verify right now. There isn't... Uh, much to really go on in terms of evidence, so you can't make a conclusion right now. But it's pretty clear that the skirmish uh, was absolutely just a disaster in so many ways. Uh, China and in India were going to engage in talks about this dispute that they've had. They do regularly. Uh, and we know that the Indian government is a very right-wing government that is hedging um, it's bets between China and the United States and has leaned more towards the United States, especially militarily over the course of the last few years. And so uh, I think it's pretty obvious that the U.S.'s handprints are on this. However, uh, it, it, it really does expose, I think, just how important the situation with China is right now in the United in the United States that I don't believe that the United States would ever dare to wage an aggressive war against China uh, independently, right? Yeah. But there is so much evidence right now that the reason why the U.S. has a policy, a pivot to Asia, why there are sixty, there is sixty percent of all naval assets of the United States geared towards China, why over 50% of all military assets generally are, are directed towards China is because it hopes that by having political and military influence surrounding the People's Republic of China, that if there was ever a need to use military aggression, it could be used by proxy. So that's why South Korea maintains tens of thousands of troops. That's why THAAD missiles, uh, defense systems have been sent um, to places like Guam. That's why uh, Australia, you know, right before the India skirmish, Australia was another point of t uh, contention militarily uh, because there were naval assets that were moving, um, moving there. And this is all just part of a larger strategic uh, move by the United States where if something were to happen uh, militarily, if the United States wanted to use its military power to try to influence uh, the trajectory of China, it would do so using one of its many allies that surround the country. And I think that's why it's pretty obvious that the U.S. has something to do with what happened between the PLA and the Indian military I'm on the border, and uh, it should be investigated thoroughly. And uh, and I know 
that China right now has been both engaging in talks with Indian officials, military officials, as well as with the United States. I know that Mike Pompeo was meeting with the foreign ministry um, as of yesterday. So we'll see what comes out of that. But it's pretty obvious that the tensions are very high and that there is a big need for people in the United States uh, and just people all over the world to condemn this because right now, uh, the world capitalist economy is in a complete and utter uh, collapse. The pandemic is not over, contrary to what it may feel like in New York City and how people are reacting. The pandemic is still a problem. And uh, we do have an election coming up in the United States. So all of those issues together point to the possibility that the United States may get very aggressive leading into November. That's general, that's been a pattern in history when the U.S. has been in a state of crisis. It's tried to wage another war. It's tried to expand its already existing wars in order to try to gain leverage and also to try to build some sort of racist nationalist unity here in the United States for electoral purposes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a scary thought. I mean, when you think of it that way and sort of these patterns in history of when America has been in, in economic dire straits um, and, and basically done a war to get everybody, you know, to worship the state again and to, to have some kind of weird meaning in their lives. Cause I don't think a lot of people understand how important those sort of mythical things are to that fuel American society. It's like things could be completely falling apart. The house could be on fire but as long as we believe, you know, to and hate something enough, it's almost like that's that sort of keeps things together societally. You know, if people can be unified and hate China or, you know, hate a particular group of people like the left, for example. But this also brings this thing up for me, which is this idea that the critiques you hear about Trump feel disingenuous, even if they happen to actually land truly sometimes. So, for example... The Trump administration could be emboldening Modi's government to act more extreme than they did under Obama, even though the Obama critics or the Obama people who go after Trump and say that he's emboldening Modi are hypocritical because they also embolden Modi. And the politicians who will go after you know Trump for the Modi stuff also had no problem with Modi during Obama. So, but at the same time, there is some there could be some truth there that this the Trump's administration, Pompeo, the State Department, the CIA could be emboldening um, actors like Modi. So I don't know. Does that make any sense what I just said? Yeah, it speaks to a, a contradiction where I think both things can be true at the same time, where, you know, I think that the big thing for me is that neoliberals and the political apparatus and, and just the um, totality of the ruling class in the United States, uh, of course, I've never had any issue with someone like Modi. In many ways, Modi fits the profile of the kind of political leader that they want, you know, politically to the right, uh, very much into ethnic divisions, very much into the global financial order um, and development on the basis of ensuring that you know, hundreds of millions of people are <laughs> impoverished at the enrichment of of the few. There's, so there's no issues there. However, when we get into how, you know, someone like Trump was able to get into office and then 
some of uh, those political leaders worldwide that are, I guess, of the Trump ilk um, in the sense that they represent sort of a, a right wing uh, or at least a strengthening of a right wing trend in the United States and the world uh, that their existence and their ability to be in power at the same time does allow them to work more closely together. And I think that that is no doubt true when it comes to the way the Trump administration has been able to um, at least, you know, escalate tensions with China in so many different directions that, you know, the Obama administration or past administrations would never try in a different political moment, in a different historical moment, right? It would be political suicide for the Obama administration to have attempted to uh, wage a trade war against China, right? That would anger Wall Street, which it did. That would anger a lot of uh, corporations and business interests, which see don't necessarily see China's rise in the short term as a problem. In the long term, yes, uh, as a problem. So that's why things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership are much more in line with the way that the financial elite see con- the containment of China, both being able to benefit from China's rise, but also at the same time see a way out of that rise at the end. To be able to compete and come out on top is really, I think, the way that the neoliberal elites see it. They they don't want an outright war right now with China um, as it stands, because first of all, as most military experts have said, um, that would be a disaster for the United States. And um, the ruling class does have some interest in self-preservation. But at the on the other hand, you know, it, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, in contrast to a trade war, would have allowed the financial and monopoly uh, corporations and the banks to do what they want to do, which is to erode regulations and to expand their influence in Asia in a way that's smarter for them. Um, it doesn't come with short-term repercussions for their profits. It comes with major repercussions for uh, the majority of the planet, especially working people and poor people. But that's capitalism. And militarism, on the other hand, uh, the pivot to Asia is a very safe way of ratcheting up tensions in the sense that it can be framed as just bilateral and multilateral, which it's really unilateral arrangements, but it can be framed as these are our allies, Japan, Australia, Guam, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are allies, South Korea, and we have the right to uh, militarily cooperate with each other. That's the way that the United States has talked about its arrangements all over the world for so long is that it's not an empire, it's not a, it's a benevolent, or if it is an empire, it's a benevolent empire, and those military relationships help preserve democracy, right? That's the Stoller, so, Stoller view. Exa- <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that then justifies the military aggression and the buildup mil- and um, lays the basis for um, a more strategic kind of war. While the Trump administration and the right-wing trend that's occurred is both dangerous in the sense ideologically it presents new challenges um, as it coexists with the just totality of bourgeois ideology, American exceptionalism, neoliberalism, all of that. It coexists with that. And then you also have um, 
the fact that it's much more erratic. It is much more about short-term um, uh, dominance, and it has a more nationalistic bent. And that leads to these kind of incoherent policies, but no less dangerous, the trade war and uh, you know what we're seeing now with the Hong Kong human rights and democracy. All of that, though, is really fueled by, I think, this so-called far-right trend, right? I do see them as, kind of, as, as a nexus and as very connected to each other. And I don't like to do what I think a lot of liberals and latte leftists and faux leftists like to do, where they point to the far-right evil and they say, oh, we, we've got to get rid of that and not understand that these, you know, the far right, the right wing, uh, the neoliberals, the neocons, they're all, they all coexist together in a particular historical moment. And that moment is the crisis of the United States, the crisis of its capitalist system, the crisis of its military dominance, and the crisis of its political system, which has been delegitimized over and over and over again in the last three and a half uh, years of Trump. And that was part of a longer process of uh, building to this moment. I wanted to ask you one more thing about this before we move on to the, to the hate crime situation against Asian Americans that's sort of on the rise since COVID-19 in the United States. This idea that Bannon and these other people on the right have very cleverly, I think, managed to create a wedge and the mainstream media, to a certain extent, has bought into it. But but people like Bannon will also accuse the mainstream media of being part of this conspiracy, too. And that conspiracy that I mean is this idea that China is actually putting their hand in, in our culture now and censoring us and controlling the NBA. China controls Hollywood. You know, these are the accusations that you'll hear that somehow actually like take float beyond just right wing fringe, not something too different that you hear even liberals saying these days. So also this idea that China, along with the US corporations, managed to destroy the white working class and sort of conspired together and export everything to slave labor, as they say. All these things are still used against China. And even, you know, Trump is effectively able to paint Biden as being some kind of puppet of China too. So you have these this interesting dynamic taking place where even though there's a lot of anti-China sentiment, you know, happening in general among all sides of the political spectrum, there's this specific almost con- kind of a conspiracy, but also they make it seem really plausible that China is having all this influence. So speak to that whole dynamic and and what you think is really going on there and if that's just clever spin on their part and people like Bannon actually know better than that or if he's a true believer of what he's saying yeah yeah well i do believe that bannon and the like are are very much true believers but also political strategists in the sense that they are touching on a particular moment and they understand what their resources and what their influence that they're building on the right uh, as these whatever cultural marxists there's so many variants of this uh, right-wing trend in the U.S. and West, which um, ultimately just point to the same phenomenon. Um, and they are true believers, but I, I think there's a larger development happening, and it is a kind of redux of anti-communism, where 
because there's so many multi-layered crises and hot points of economic, political, social kind of misery and confusion and disillusionment here in the United States, that there's been a trend, even on the left, of trying to find that uh, foreign enemy, right? That enemy that ideologically and economically are divergent with the U.S. and with the West and with with the hegemony of imperialism. And so they can be easily blamed in, 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 uh, for the problems that exist uh, right here in the U.S. mainland or that exist around the world. And I, I do believe that all of it really stems from, from this point of view. I mean, when I think about just the ways in which uh, there is such a uniform agreement from the radical left to the far right on China's economic role in the world, uh, it's something to really behold. And it, and it is very dangerous, and it has to be called out. And that's why I spend so much time on this. Because if you can have, and I, I've said this on other programs, if you can have majorities of workers in the United States and even the most oppressed sections of the working class uh, believe that China is just as much implicated in or even more so implicated in the destruction and misery that they experience here, then you can really ensure the safety and preservation of the existing order. Um, That's what makes this majoritarian view of China as a negative force in the world so dangerous in that it's based first of off on complete and utter mythology. I mean, it's based mostly on racism, anti-communist tropes, the idea that China's rise was some authoritarian uh, theft of the rights, as you said, of the white working class, which (laughs) is honestly the only working part of the working class that most pundits and most activists um, across the left care about, right? But um, it it's disturbing in the sense that it has distorted this, how Americans especially, how people in the United States view China's political process and economic process to the point where we can't have genuine conversations and let alone solidarity, right? Which is what we really need with the people of China, which happens to be, uh, I don't know, uh, just under 20% of the whole world, right? So (laughs) we are actually cutting off a large section of the planet um, from uh, our point of view by adopting this very anti-communist and jingoistic worldview of China. And it just, it infuriates me so much because, you know, not not even China believes itself to be some pure society, that it's made all the correct decisions. Um, but to judge really the world economic power right now, the 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 economic power that is going to only grow and become more influential, to judge it on such a racist and wholly American exceptionalist basis basically gives us no understanding of the economic and political realities of the world. Because if you can cut off 20% of the world from your own understanding of it, uh, then you don't, you don't have an understanding of what's going on, you, in, let alone uh, in China, where 
you know, regardless of whatever mistakes you think China has made, regardless of whether you think they're undercutting the uh, uh, the working class here, um, China has made so many inroads in uh, just ensuring that the needs of its people are met. And at the same time, um, has done so on the basis of what I thought a lot of right wingers and a lot of these pro capitalist folks really like, you know, genuine competition, uh, you know, relationships based on economic production and growth and uh, really embracing the market in so many ways. And yet at the same time, being able to ensure that, you know, workers' wages are going up 10%, 8 to 10% per year, really able to. Um, you know, build a strong middle class, right? All of these very things that right wingers have been talking about for so long are kind of happening in China, in not in the sense that they're happening on the basis of this mythology, but they're really happening in China based on an economy that is um, trying to figure out how to mix socialism and capitalism together to 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 create a stable society, something that China has not had in. 300 years, right? So um, I think it, it, it just, uh, yeah, it, it baffles me. But I think so much of it is this virulent racism, this virulent anti-communism, which almost equates, right? And there's some anti-Semitism in here too, almost equates like China and Wall Street together, right? Wall Street and China double-dealed, undercut the Anglo-Saxon working class, um, undercut the European Eurocentric world order and is now just running away with all of the profits. And that's why we've got to get the yellow menace. And, uh, it, it usually leaves out the wall street half, right? <laughs> right. Most, most, uh, of these folks are much angrier at China than they are at the financial and corporate interests, which, um, basically made a short-term deal with China to exploit its labor for a few decades when it was possible and is now also very angry at China for not allowing that to be the case as it once was. <laughs> so it's it's a political mess in a lot of ways, but I think it signifies what we were speaking about before, just all of the crises that the U.S. and the Western economic and military and political model is experiencing right now and how China is just such a convenient force because ultimately uh it is a powerful force and all and it is the one that the united states and the west need to blame and need to uh find a way to contain if it's going to act like it is the most exceptional world order that ever was right i mean in 50 you know in less than two to three generations we're going to see a completely different world economic structure like it's not going to look the same if things continue to go as they are so in a lot of ways, it's also understandable. Yeah, it totally is. It's kind of weird in a way if we do end up in some kind of hot war with China. Um, it would be surreal, you know, if William Blum's book, Killing Hope, basically it it starts with one of the first secret wars, which are the stay behind armies in World War II to fight against China. American troops who were basically forced to stay behind after most of the soldiers were allowed to come home eventually like boycotted and like put down their, their, so a lot of them put down their guns and refused to fight in this secret war. Um, so that would be, that would be sad. That would be tragic. Uh, I guess it might complete the circle in some weird way. I, you know, this is such a big subject. We could do a whole podcast on this, but 
I, I wanted to slightly shift the conversation just to the domestic, the racist angle of this, because while the sort of imperialist view, the anti-communism view definitely has a lot of crossover with racism, you know, and even just casual racism, a lot of people grow up indoctrinated with this American propaganda, might not even think of themselves as racist, but there's this other aspect of an actual increase um, in violent hate crimes and not just violent hate crimes. I mean, we've seen a rash of other forms of hate crimes as well, but but specifically violent hate crimes against Asian Americans in the United States since the COVID-19 pandemic um, became like a story here. And even before, I mean, if you look at this list, there were, there were some horrible things happening to Asian Americans here even before it became a big story. You see, you crossed the line. I crossed the line. You don't know a damn thing. Go back to China where you belong, you fucking asshole. Chinky, chinky, China lady. Chinky, chinky, China lady. We don't, you know what? You give the, you give the people a bad name here. We hate you people. Go back where you belong. Fuck you. And I just wanted to just quickly just read a couple of them off that were in the news. As early as February 2nd, this is reported on CNN, an Asian woman was attacked in the subway station for wearing a mask. Uh, one witness said she heard a man call the woman who appeared Asian a diseased bitch. And there are, I could read all of these, but it would probably take me 20 minutes to do so. Um, this is a whole list uh, that was actually published on the ADL's website. There's at least one or two hate crimes per day since the pandemic. And one of the most horrific incidents... Danny, then I don't, I don't, do you remember seeing this one in the news where uh, two children playing at a park were stabbed? I guess the FBI who investigated it said that it was a hate crime because of, uh, you know, xenophobia against Chinese people. The federal law enforcement official said that he thought the family was Chinese and infecting people with the coronavirus. These kids were sent to the emergency room. One of them had a horrible scar across his scalp. Uh, luckily, no one got killed, but this doesn't seem to be getting a lot of attention. We are getting a lot more attention, obviously, right now for the Black Lives Matter movement, for shedding more light on hate crimes against black Americans. But this largely seems to have gone under the radar. I'm just wondering, I, I haven't really asked about your background, Danny, but did you grow up in the United States? Yeah, you did. I grew up uh, in the Boston area, actually. Oh, you grew up in Boston. Okay. Did you experience any racism in your life, casual racism, direct racism? Oh my gosh, yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, it's funny because my background is, um, you know, I guess you say quote-unquote mixed race. I don't usually identify as that because uh, I think there could be a debate. Of course, racial politics are very complex and everyone has their opinion on them. Um, but my experience, yeah, no, I grew up in a working-class background in, uh, you know, the Boston area, It's it's a very quote-unquote diverse area um and you know especially amongst this uh very um fetishized i think white working class uh it, it's often undermined just how much racism is a part of the lexicon of, of their existence right um and um i would never not stand with white workers, uh, if they are truly, you know, fighting for, um, you know, social and economic justice. 
But on the other hand, my experience was uh, I grew up in a mostly working class background, right? I, I didn't. Uh, it wasn't until high school where I started to see, um, you know, more wealthy folks from other areas um, of the city. But um, during my, my uh, experience growing up was, yeah, racism against Asian Americans uh, was rampant. It was towards me. I was one of the few um, uh, in my particular area. And um, yeah, the chinks, the gooks, the, the jokes about uh, Vietnam and about, you know, being, uh, I don't know what, what it's called, uh, like, uh, you know, d- digging a bunker or a hole, you know, just the Viet Cong jokes, but really the, 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 the threat of violence was always there, right? It was always this idea that, um, you were lesser, you were inhuman, you know, you come from, you know, a country, a land that is, subject of the u.s's whims so all of that was very much uh, part of my experience growing up for sure yeah i mean boston from what i understand of it it's a notoriously racist city i mean a lot of boston comedians will make you know joke often about it and some of them themselves are are fairly racist so yeah yeah and what's what's crazy about it too though uh, sorry to interrupt but it's just I grew up right on the border of Boston. I grew up in a in a in an area East Cambridge, which is Cambridge and Boston border each other. And uh, this is a neighborhood, or just a larger city of Cambridge, is considered um, very progressive in a lot of ways. But it, <laughs> when you're growing up and you're growing up in an environment where race and racism is just such a formative part of your experience. Yeah, uh, the anti-Asian sentiment is there, and it's there on so many levels. Whether it's the model minority thing, which a lot of Asian Americans talk about, which is very relevant. You know, this assumption that uh, you're, you know, just uh, an amazing student, that all you're good for is your intellectual labor, that you know you're privileged in so many ways. And then the other side is the threat of violence, right? That if you do get out of line, if you do try to step outside of some of those boundaries, that um, yeah, you can be a gook too and, um, find yourself, you know, the target of some form of, uh, micro warfare, I guess you could call it. So, yeah, I, I think that, that, that's just part of, uh, the experience of being Asian American in this country. And, um, it's, it's mixed up with a lot of class politics too, because I think that a lot of the pressure to not talk about it comes from this idea that if you do yeah you're going to lose whatever privileges you've gained being here right you're you're not going to be able to remain stable in this economic order and for some that works for others that that doesn't work um so that's how i've always seen it you know i grew up in like the suburbs of california most of the people of color i knew were asian american and i remember being i remember being like really surprised actually you know, even though I, maybe I wasn't the most like politically tuned in person, like even like in the early 2000s when I was like just getting into college, I remember thinking that it was weird that American culture was starting to like allow uh, racial stereotypes of Asian Americans, like again on like as like a mainstream comedy thing. It, it was almost like there was a resurgence of it. Like I remember Mad TV had uh, um, the, the woman who does the family guy wife's voice 
played a you know like a yellow face basically like did like an asian american character or like i don't even remember what it was but i just remember thinking it was like extremely offensive at the time and you know and then people complain about um frank azaria having to you know stepping down from doing like a poo because he's a white guy but it's like i i guess all i'm saying is it's just weird to me the disconnect people have that they can a lot of people can understand or they they pretend like they understand the black experience but then they scoff at you know something like why the simpsons would retire the character a poo there is yeah there is this trend though about almost like a hierarchy of racism right it's like this idea that um when it's politically convenient it's it's necessary to stand up for black lives and whatnot um but usually to fight racism in totality is never politically convenient. And actually standing up for black lives is also never politically convenient. It only is convenient when black people are actually in the lead themselves, um, making it impossible to ignore it. With When it comes to the question of Asian America, you know, there's so many complexities of migration and class and uh, relationships to U.S. aggression worldwide, to business interests, that it becomes a lot more difficult to stand up against this form of racism because there's no unity in, in Asian America around this in a lot of ways. And uh, there's also um, probably only one point, I think that's why I talk so much about China, I think China is really the only point of uh contention where we can kind of start to build a consensus about why racism anti-asian racism is such a problem right um because it has been so marginalized and there isn't that history of struggle in the united states there is one there is one it is vibrant it's beautiful in its own way but it doesn't have the same legacy the same history um and it often can fall um, out of our line of sight and our historical understanding. So right now, the fight against anti-Asian racism, um, which is part of the struggle against all forms of racism, really does start and begin and end with how we think about China and then how we can connect that struggle of defending China's right to exist, of defending China's right to figure out how it wants to develop um, is very much connected to how we should be fighting racism right here in the United States uh, and standing up for black lives and being in solidarity with black people and being in solidarity with native people and anyone who is a victim of racism. um, It's really about respecting their self-determination and also fighting the forces of power that are are at play. Um, And it's the same for uh, fighting anti-Asian racism. Um, you know, I was reading an article recently in China Daily uh, about how um, some of the first um, reasons why so many people in New York City's Chinatown were not coming out was not only because of the pandemic, but there were a lot of reports that uh, a lot of people were fearful of the violence um, and that a lot of the business losses in Chinatown and and the economic impact there is not just because of the pandemic. It's also because business owners, small business owners, their fear. uh, Of course. 
of violence, right? And that's oh, never talked about. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not talked about. It's not part of this narrative. Um, but I think, you know, making it part of the larger conversation about racism in the United States can only benefit us and can only make uh, the movement, the uprising that we're seeing stronger. And um, it can only make it more robust. No, yeah, completely agree. I mean, I think that's why we just need to encourage this movement to fold in more issues and and try to push it in along in a positive direction. And I think that's sort of my issue um, with people who are hostile towards Black Lives Matter because it doesn't talk about foreign policy. I, I could understand if that's your main thing, why you really want that to be the main movement. And I do too. But it's, it's I, I do think people, I, I think I, it's kind of a moment where I think you can almost get these people to re- kind of get radicalized in that direction. I, I think it's a good opportunity to try to be encouraging about it. So I, that's like kind of the message I've been trying to spread to people. But I do think that the structural critique is important. We We do need to examine why, you know, so many of these movements don't, go down the road of foreign policy, but we, we only need to go back to the civil rights movement and how that started to fold in things like anti-Vietnam War sentiment and class struggle and things like that. That's where I'd like to see this movement eventually go and, and become a much larger movement. I'm usually not optimistic about things, but I guess for some reason I am right now about this. So I don't know if you share my optimism, Danny, but you have any final words on that before we yeah, one of sure. the blue boys. <laughs> uh, yeah, just briefly, I guess. Um, I I do share optimism in the sense that uh, you know I I always look at things as both. There's the subjective element to all things and all uprisings, all social phenomenon, economic developments, every all of it, foreign policy, and then there's the objective situation. And and I think right now what we're seeing is a a huge shift in consciousness here in the United States that's pro- that's been developing uh, uh, for many years now around racism, around racist policing, around mass incarceration. Uh, and you're also seeing objectively on the world stage, um, especially with the pandemic, especially with the economic crisis, you're seeing an objective shift in world politics where regardless if the United States views itself as a hegemon and does everything that it can do to maintain its grip um, and its parasitic influence over world affairs, there is no doubt that regardless of what happens in each individual country, that the world is looking at China as the quintessential partner for what you want to do when you don't want to be poor, when you want to address climate change, when you want to have some semblance of peace in the world, that that's the move, right? And regardless of the racism or whatever people want to hurl at China, uh, they'll ultimately just be left in the dust. So what we have is a very positive phenomenon in that you have a lot of contradictions coming to a head. You have people moving in the right direction around very foundational questions around policing and mass incarceration. You have this world phenomenon and you have the very much, you do have the potential over the course of years, right? I think the struggle is always a matter of years and years and years of work that as this work begins to take shape and the fruits of it begin to be seen, there will be many opportunities for these connections to be made for resurgence of internationalism, uh, because we know that the U.S. is not going to roll back its warfare state. It didn't do it during a pandemic, which 
proves that it will never do it as it is currently. If anyone needed proof that the U.S. can't forge peace in the world, it's the COVID-19 pandemic. If it needed proof that it was always a wholly racist society, the pandemic and this uprising show that if, you know, there's proof that the economic system that undergirds the U.S. is completely bankrupt. Well, the pandemic also showed us that, you know, as 500 plus billion dollars go to the rich while everyone else experiences a depression that I think sets the stage for what's to come next. And of course, we're going to have the very bad, the the rot of the system be predominant in many ways. But with this uprising, with this shift in consciousness, with the malaise in the United States and with world politics being so unstable because of the United States, yeah, I think we will see um, this move in the right direction. And my hope and one thing I'm going to be focusing on a lot is talking about how our movement against racism here in the United States needs to start to leverage the international situation to our advantage. There are so many countries who do not stand for what the United States does to black people and uh, in terms of policing and mass incarceration and the whole lot of the human rights catastrophe that is black existence in America, but also that the world has every interests much of these the world's nations especially those nations that are trying to forge their own path of development have every interest in ensuring that a better situation exists in the united states than what exists right now so there is this opportunity to use even the formal international institutions the united nations for example to begin to start to build these connections right to begin to say hey look we see the united states is aggressive towards china Uh, We believe the (laughs) U.N. needs to start to look at what the United States is doing. And we want to invite China and Iran and Syria and all these countries to, you know, help us. Right. So there is this opportunity to put even the the political, the politics to the side in the sense that regardless of whether what you think of the Syrian government, the Chinese government, et cetera, et cetera. You can put that to the side, just knowing that those countries are experiencing very huge hostilities from the United States, knowing that they have an interest in um, leveraging something, uh, anything, right? Even if they say they, they'll let the United States do its thing, we know uh, for a fact, I mean, you can ask anybody around the world uh, that uh, if there's an opportunity to seize diplomatically some sort of leverage, you're going to seize it. And, and this is the time. So I'm hoping that, you know, um, that's kind of what I'm going to be focusing on for a while is, is this message that I think needs to get out there that, yeah, we do have an opportunity here to use the world situation to the advantage of the movement here. And that can only strengthen the world situation as well. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I haven't even heard anybody talking about it like that recently. Um, you're the first person I've heard mention that. I think that's a brilliant idea. Uh, I think it, it, it definitely has legs. Um, the only problem I see with it is that people can construe it. And I think this is actually why part of why Russiagate or just why the Russia hysteria existed is to partially prevent or create a stigma partially about what you're encouraging. Because let's say if Russia jumps in and Putin does a speech about Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, starts encouraging Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, um, that would be vindication for all these neoliberals that, look, you know, Russia was 
exacerbating the Black Lives Matter movement, just like those Russian troll farm ads that we showed you three years ago. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. So there's a, it just almost seems like there's all these things to set it. It's like they know that what you're talking about would be effective, and that's why they've... I mean, I think that's part of why this stigma has been so injected into the landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so true. I mean, it's so true. Uh, Susan Rice was just on MSNBC talking about how, you know, the Russians and U.S. adversaries uh, are creating, are taking advantage and exploiting the divisions like Iran, et cetera, are exploiting the divisions in U.S. society around racism. And um, yeah, no, it's it's definite. That's definitely going to be the narrative. And um, the hope is that there will be more people open to delegitimizing that narrative and and putting that to the side, given ha the hypocrisy of the U.S. on issues of yeah. human rights here in the United States. That would be the hope, because what Russiagate does so, I think, inadvertently, is it does delegitimize U.S. political institutions, and it does um, create such a trollish environment where you can't have these conversations and um, at the same time it makes the u.s look weak at this and so hopefully um, the combination of those things the u.s looking weak and the u.s the u.s's continued delegitimization on questions of race um, only strengthen the opportunity for solidarity because you know I, I think part of the problem will be the left too is that there's so much chauvinism on the left there's so much racism on the left in the united states where there's some there's these weird purity tests about china russia etc iran uh that these conversations often become delegitimized as well so i think a big part of the work is challenging that narrative that uh, you can only work with other countries if they somehow meet your litmus test of what a democracy is, for example, um, which is racism in and of itself and is American exceptionalism is this idea of U.S. superiority over all other things. So that, I think, will be the majority of the work. More people need to understand that it's hard for other countries who don't wage wars all the time to want to work with a country that the only country in the world that's launched a nuke twice um, pretty much on a civilian population and uh, that has that many of its own population incarcerated and calls itself a democracy. It's a little hard to, to trust that. Speaking of trollish things, um, the, the trollish behavior, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Boogaloo Boys, if you don't already know who they are, for the people listening to this, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it seems like these people wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the Proud Boys, and I don't, I'm not saying that the Proud Boys are responsible for far right, this far right violent attack, but it just seems like these, these sort of online troll activity, you know, has reached a certain point where there are people inspired now on a regular basis to commit acts of real violence. I would even argue that I don't even know if I would call this an act of far, like a far right extremist violent attack as much as I would say. It is something that is a result of this online MAGA sort of troll culture that has um, that has triggered mental illness or uh, or people to do extreme things. I, I I almost see this more like a QAnon style violent attack. Right wing figures like Charlie Kirk and other people uh, they really wanted to believe this killing of these two 
uh, officers, well, specifically the one officer who was guarding the federal building in Oakland, was done by some kind of Antifa or Black Lives Matter protester or terrorist, when in fact, it was actually a orchestrated, premeditated murder. I don't think they actually knew their target in advance, but two men who were inspired by this militant, anti-government boogaloo group uh, were charged in the drive-by killing of a federal courthouse guard in Oakland, California last month. But what was fascinating about this situation, and it's not really a surprise, is that the right wing was for weeks, you know, saying that that was some kind of Antifa terrorist. And it actually, in some ways, I think really inflamed a lot of their views and their sort of dehumanizing views that suddenly emerge where they're like, yeah, just run over these fucking protesters. You know, even some of those mainstream new right people, you know, maybe previously wouldn't have said all lives splatter or something that crazy. We're starting to say things like that after this cop got killed at the Oakland courthouse because they thought it was Antifa. They were sure it was Antifa. But in fact, it was actually from a bizarre anti-government group called Boogaloo that actually, uh, from what I read, originated on 4chan. I don't know, Danny, what was your reaction when this incident first happened? Did you even hear of the Boogaloo group before this? Funny thing is, I first heard about the Boogaloo boys from... A friend of mine who lives in Wuhan, China, because he follows really? the right wing kind of movements. Yeah, he's an American who works in China, and um, he, uh, you know, very progressive person, very radical person. And he, he was talking to me about them. I had no idea what they were, and you know, I, I think with the, when it comes to the the right wing kind of troll culture, it's hard to to follow it day by day because it. It it's bigger than it ever was, or at least it's more prominent. <laughs> I guess my my sense always when it comes to these right wing terrorist attacks, uh, white terrorism, white supremacist terrorism, uh, and especially the, this new iteration that's coming off of this online subculture, is that it's it's such a convenient thing for the U.S. state. Uh, there's a long history of just collusion and collaboration with these forces from the U.S. state. Um, they they almost form a sort of um, informal arm of the police state in the sense that even when they're conducting terrorism against it, their their aims only help solidify the objectives of the state in the sense that, as we saw here, uh, the, even... As more was known about the situation, the dominant narrative was Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the left, the crazy left, as Trump calls them, um, is waging terrorism on the streets when nothing further could be, uh, when nothing further from the truth is is uh, the reality of the situation. So, um, you know, I'm reading right now, uh, in this moment, I've been inspired to, you know, pick up more books about uh, black radical history, revolutionary history, and you know I'm reading right now Negroes with Guns by Robert Williams, and in that sense, uh, the struggle of the NAACP in North Carolina in the early '60s, uh, he goes over so blatantly just how white vigilantes, white supremacists, uh, were so connected to the police in the sense that they basically act as, acted as their shock troops. The police protected them, allowed them to do their violence. And then when they were called upon to help, they would say nothing's going on. That was that's literally the the dynamic here right now in the United States that the far right 
can basically do whatever it wants in this online uh, subculture um, helps uh, fan the flames. And then when a crisis, a real crisis happens, an uprising in this situation occurs, uh, these folks can also do whatever they want and then blame it on the left. And so I think this is just a historic situation, a situation that has existed in this country for a very long time um, and, and speaks to, I think, the continued apologists of the far right that really encapsulates the entire U.S. government. I mean, um, for whatever weak uh, positions that even the most liberal segments of the U.S. government have taken against the far right, there's never any teeth to it. There's nothing that's done to disband this kind of activity. And, and then they condemn China for its authoritarianism when China would never allow such a thing to happen. <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, these kind of forces could never um, build the kind of power and influence that they have, even in the online community. That would be preposterous because it's these forces that help destabilize a system. They help uh, also curry and foster and foment the most reactionary elements of this society. So even on just that level, right, there's never any op true opposition to it from the most leftist of Democrats, right? Even Sanders would never really talk about this. He'd be more interested in the pain of the white working class or whatever it is, yeah. or the working class. Never talk about these issues because uh, racism isn't, I guess, politically um, uh, plausible as, as a way to build strength um, politically here in this country. But even, you know, just the establishment figures never talk about it either. And when they do... It's usually just a weak condemnation, but there's never anything that's done about it. So that, that's always whenever I hear about this, it's like there are there's such a terrain, right? Not only that Trump is in power, but also from the fact that the entire political establishment and the police and the FBI, for that matter, we know that the FBI has for years um, so-called infiltrated these groups and has used them for their own anti-counter-terror operations, right? When they didn't have enough um, so-called Muslim extremists, right, quote-unquote Muslim extremists doing anything here in the United States. They couldn't build their own domestic uh, terrorist watch here. They use white supremacists as a way to practice their counter-terror activities. So we know that that's something the FBI also does, and it's why uh, these forces are allowed to even exist. They'd be so easy, right, in a just society, in a society that actually worked for the benefit of people, it would be so obvious that such an ideology and such activity is completely antithetical to any social justice for working people of any race, but especially black people. And it could be easily uh, rid of in the sense that you strip them of their opportunities for access and you uh, make sure that the punishment fits the crime. And that would be that. But here in the United States, this is par for the course. This is normal in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean... It seems like it's increasingly normal. Uh, I mean, this guy was an active duty Air Force sergeant who just incidentally happened to be working or stationed at the same base that uh, the Princess cruise ship COVID-19 victims were at. Um, the whole thing, I mean, it's it just takes on such a cartoonish character because it's it's almost like I don't even want to give this group credit and say that they have anarchist views, but they definitely seem accelerationist just specifically talking about this Boogaloo group. And in the end, it seems like a lot of these people who are just in this, you know, behind this Trump cult 
maybe some of them aren't even necessarily like indoctrinated cult members, but they're just along for the ride and they just see, you know, the chaos that he's causing. And I'm not trying to make any excuses for the, this particular group, but it just seems like the motives for them killing this cop at this protest were just to kick off, you know, some kind of civil war like event. It wasn't even necessarily racially motivated. So that I, I don't know. It's, it's just very bizarre to me. But yeah, I mean, it is becoming increasingly normal. I'm, I just did a podcast on how there's dozens and, and dozens of violent crimes that have been committed in the name of QAnon that I don't even think most people have even mm. heard of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 one thing that I find very interesting about the Trump phenomenon that doesn't get talked about, but I've, I'm observing it in the online culture. I went to China with a lot of these folks. There is a growth in libertarianism that I didn't think I would see under Trump because Trump is in power and regardless of his maybe kind of half-hearted libertarian views on economics, he's definitely not a libertarian in the traditional sense. Um, Yeah. You know, he believes in a strong state for certain things and also believes in a strong state for the economy in some ways, just not in the ways that, uh, 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 you know, uh, Keynesian uh, economists or to the socialists would agree with. So what I found interesting about all of this, the, the, the far right build up, the strengthening of them, that the political incoherence, which you kind of speak to, right, that they're, um, um, we know that the root is white supremacy, but uh, the coherency of it is not always um, so clear politically because there's so many different strands. But this libertarianism that's, I think, building up in the population. I think the white American population, to be more specific, is, I think, a product of the chaos in a lot of ways, right? The political chaos of the Trump period, somebody like him being able to win, seeing the disjointedness of everything. I think there's a lack of security right now with white Americans across the political spectrum uh, with U.S. society as it exists right now, right? There is a shift in consciousness around race, that's wholly debated, whether it's like elitism of the identity politics strand or just the understanding that most people think most people understand that cops are racist and, you know, kill black people at higher rates than anyone else, incarcerate them at higher rates than anyone else. Right. There is this increased consciousness. And then there's just this understanding that the 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 the, the whiteness that used to cash a check in some ways. Right. There was some material benefits to that, that has eroded in some ways, or at least it's eroded in perception, even if it still exists uh, very much in reality. There is a perception that with the rise of China, with the U.S. becoming a less white country, with um, Trump being in office and talking about white man's jobs all the time, um, and with this overall understanding of Wall Street being a reactionary political force, libertarianism has really um, grown out of that. It's like this anti-government in the sense that government is now seen as an instrument of banks, and banks could be also seen as an instrument of Jews in the anti-Semitic uh, right-wing um, sense, and also an instrument of boosting China, right? All these things are very linked in the sense that you have a a growing frustration at the base of white America, especially in the suburban communities. Uh, in I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, mass shootings occur in these communities. Um, 
there's a lot of this instability. And I think it's because the world is changing and their particular idea of how the system should run is not working in the way they think it should run. Um, and there is also just this social dislocation, this crisis going on. And the only thing they know is violence. The only thing they know is to organize a civil war. They, there's a legacy for all of this stuff. There's a legacy that exists. Um, and I think we're seeing the haphazardness of all of it. I, I don't necessarily see the threat. I think some people on the left and liberals think that this is like, you know, the, these are the forces that are going to create a civil war situation and they're going to take state power. And then we're going to have like a third Reich situation. I don't see that. Um, these forces are definitely dangerous. They're definitely they definitely should be dealt with um, politically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see them more as an outgrowth of a general crisis and that um, what is ultimately probably going to occur is that these forces are going to be given more and more political opportunity to become a normal aspect of the society, Trump being the first um, iteration of that. That these libertarians, these anti-government, white kind of militia groups, quote-unquote militia um, groups, that they will be more of a mainstream part of the way that politics is just, you know, dealt with and how it occurs as a system, under the system as it is currently constituted. Um, And then you can call that what you like. You can call that a fascist society if you you want. But but ultimately, um, yeah, it... For me, it's more of a, a crisis of uh, this system that's creating these folks and allowing them to be so prominent politically. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, it, it's pathetic in some ways. It just shows the decay of the system because these folks, um, right, they come from a, a, a very long-standing history that I think is in just such a state of disorder where... Obviously, we need something new fast because uh, none of us want to be talking about this anymore. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. It's it's weird to think about it that future reality where we have sort of almost like a quasi, you know, a, a quasi fascist sort of libertarian a party that exists folded into like American politics. That's sort of of that Buchananite tradition. Because while you were talking, I, I was thinking back to my childhood where I remember. The first time I ever heard of Pat Buchanan, he was like on a stage talking somewhere and he had a cage on stage with a white guy in a suit in it. And it said endangered species. And his, his speech was about how the white male is going to be an endangered species that I remember even as a kid, I had understood the political calculation of that, like the vision behind that of like trying to rile up white Americans who feel threatened by their own grasp on power sort of eroding away over time. And, and it's sort of the, just the culmination, I, uh, you know, of that. Um, but just so people know the Boogaloo group, if you see any pictures of militia people or any of the people at these like far right protests or rallies wearing Hawaiian shirts in groups, that's sort of a signifier that they are part of this Boogaloo boys group. And actually most of them have not committed violent acts. It's not even, it's like an actual open and public little weird trend on, on, in these internet troll forums. So you can find, if you go back and look at pictures of older protests, you can find plenty of pictures of these people. So these two guys just happen to 
take a lot of this rhetoric, I guess, more seriously than most of these people and acted on it. Um, he had an accomplice that also got arrested that drove him in the van, uh, was used for the drive-by shooting on the, on the security guard at the federal building. I'll just wrap it up by asking you, um, since this Juneteenth rally that Trump's doing seems to be creating a lot, provoking a lot of reactions, I even see protesters encouraging other people not to go and protest. I saw this last night saying, you know, we've gotten word that there's going to be all this, like all these people there are armed and they're ready to like kill people and don't go to the protest. It's a setup. My problem is a lot of the neoliberal media pundits, you know, they've been, been doing boy who cried wolf about Trump for so long that it's hard to feel that you can actually comment on it without, you know, sounding like someone who's on CNN. Because they overblow everything Trump does, you know. I know I'm not really asking a question, but what's your what are your final thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's it's difficult because I think that as we saw so prominently when Trump threatened the military the first time around on um, the protesters in Washington D.C. Uh, we saw a lot of so-called progressives begin to say, oh, well, oh, God, this is like the thing. This is we were so progressive before and believed that the real problem is the political system that encourages, uh, you know, Wall Street to run away with wealth and encourages all this uh, neoliberal disaster uh, to all just you know, to, to exist. And that leads to Trump. And that's the important thing. But then suddenly when Trump threatened the military on protesters, it was like, that's it. Free speech is over. And Trump is the big danger. We got to get him out now. And I think, you know, it coming up in an election period, it's not a surprise that Donald Trump is doing what he's doing because he doesn't have the economy to fall back on. The capitalist economy is in tatters. He doesn't have this pandemic to show uh, to as a show of strength, right? Uh, the U.S. response was disastrous, and uh, this uprising is a political moment. That's kind of like the last moment he has to um, build momentum for his campaign, his 2020 campaign. So it's not a surprise that he's kind of baiting the corporate media to get into this debate of him being kind of like the strong man. Um, I think Trump's followers really like that about Donald Trump, that uh, he will say whatever he wants to say and that he'll make these threats. And oftentimes these threats um, are either carried out in half measures. Usually, generally what's done is what's usually done, um, regardless of who is politically in power. But um, you do have this sense of like impending danger that the corporate media loves because then it allows them to uh, be above the fray and to be the stable voice, right? The voice of normalcy that Biden so much is trying to <laughs> campaign on. Uh, so I think, yeah, this is another iteration of that, right? Donald Trump is going to play this role. Uh, he is doing it with the protests. He's doing it with his own uh, campaign rally. Uh, and the corporate media is uh, setting a stage, right? So uh, as much as, the corporate media says they oppose Trump. They ultimately embolden and strengthen his forces by, first of all, giving it 24-7 attention. But also in their coverage, it's more about fear-mongering 
for the left and for so-called liberals and less about actually opposing what's going on. It's more about selling fear so people will ingest it and people will vote the right way rather than actually opposing what is actually what is a, a pretty uh, dangerous thing, which is a lot of people gathering for Trump's rally, um, not just because it's a pandemic, but because, um, you know, this is really not the time for any of this. Uh, but Trump is making it his time and he hopes that that will uh, lead to uh, a favorable political outcome. So in my opinion, I, I think that, yeah, when we talk about Trump, it uh, it's hard not to sound like um, the corporate media because they oppose him on everything all the time, even things that we uh, may agree with on the left, you know, pulling troops out of Syria, Afghanistan, etc. Uh, they'll oppose him on that. They oppose him on everything. The big issue, I think, and where I generally focus on, I generally don't get into the, I, I generally don't even talk about Donald Trump that much because um, of, of all the continuity just in policy that's been occurring. But lately, I've been more so willing to have a, a more open anti-Trump administration line because of the hostilities towards China, because of the pandemic. It's important uh, that the left stake out that ground and understand and, and make people understand that the left is not pro-Trump, pro-Trump campaign. But at the same time, it has to be done in a certain way. It can't be done by just highlighting Donald Trump, the individual. It always has to go back to how these are systemic problems. This is this is the the rot of a system, an economic system, a political system, and a military order, which um, needs to be the subject of our conversations. And um, any conversation that just solely focuses on Trump is ultimately just for personal pleasure. It, or you gen it's genuinely about um, gaining some sort of political outcome within the current within the current system, which ultimately ultimately won't benefit anyone for the most part, but it, except for uh, those forces in power, the capitalists and and all of their functionaries in the state. That that's and people who have a proximity to that. Um, I was talking to a friend today who really wanted my advice. He's very torn. He's like, I don't want to vote for Biden. I don't want to even think about it. But look what Trump did around the transgender health care issue. And I said, yes, we need to oppose what Trump did there. And for sure, that would get anyone thinking who has any sort of relationship to that struggle thinking about, well, how the hell do we get this guy out of office? But I still told him, look, I'm not going to shame anyone how they vote or what they, you know, how they navigate the system as it currently exists. But if you're not interrupting the general trend of U.S. society, endless war, austerity, white supremacy, all of these things that we've been talking about here, then you're just going to get more of the same. Regardless of if Biden wins in 2020, you'll get uh, a, a different version of Trump in 2024 or uh, maybe something even worse. We're talking about all these far-right groups. They'll probably gain momentum under a Biden administration. Um, and so that has to be acknowledged as well because I think there's such a singular, narrow worldview. Um, and politically, that's that's very dangerous. No, you're so right, though, about the that the media is, you know, they want 
they needed to sell advertising revenue. They want people to be constantly afraid. They want people to be constantly reacting. And ultimately, Trump is still playing the media, whether they realize it or think they're smarter than him or not. I mean, he's still getting them to jump when he says jump. He knows his tweets are going to be broadcast all over CNN. He doesn't, you know, he's not the type of person that he he wants to get attention for his tweets. He wants them to be news stories every time he tweets them. So that's absolutely what he's doing. But at the same time, any any analysis that only just focuses in on what Trump's doing, and that's pretty much what the corporate media does, is basically following a nonsensical kind of semi-random trajectory that doesn't really go anywhere. It's just a constant, you know, a constant source of entertainment, as you said, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. It's the other people in his administrations that are actually seem to have some kind of ideological motive. Ultimately, you know, I used to think Trump maybe had some kind of ideology, like, you know, he had strong views on certain things and maybe he does in in certain areas, but it just seems like he, he really just gets led or influenced by like the last few people he talked to and then he'll change his mind. Um, and, and it just keeps it's kind of just like a random shuffle. So, um, I guess that's the, to me, the deepest really you can go with him as a president. So like, there's not really, you know, you got to look more at people like Pompeo. What are the actual foreign policy actions that are happening? I'm going to try to stay optimistic and I hope you've been doing well under this pandemic situation. I didn't really talk too much about that, but We'll have to talk again soon, Danny. Thank you for your time today. Where can everybody check out your work? Yeah, so thanks. And, and yeah, we can definitely uh, get together again soon. Um, so you can check me out every week at blackagendareport.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Spirit of Ho. That's Spirit of H-O. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Danny. 